Alright guys, so this is SSD, Sustainable Self-Development, a podcast for people who want to get ahead in fitness and in life without driving themselves crazy. So if you want to look up a year from now and think, damn, I came a long way, but you don't want to burn out in the process as you get there, you came to the right place. We'll get into today's episode in just a second, but just want to let you know that we have an awesome community on Facebook in the form of a group which you can join, where we discuss and debate things, drop ideas debate over which person to interview for the next podcast and all that good stuff so go to facebook type in sustainable self-development or you can just check the show notes here and click the link there and you'll find the sustainable self-development facebook group and you can join also not sure where you're listening to this right now but this podcast is available on a variety of platforms itunes soundcloud podbeam and youtube you can find it on all of these platforms if you just type in sustainable self-development because luckily nobody is weird enough to name themselves in such a way except me so look me up on these places and follow the show by subscribing so that you don't miss future episodes and with that let's get into the show okay so welcome everybody thank you for tuning in uh this i believe is maybe episode 99 or maybe 100 or 99 something like that of the SSD podcast, and I recruited two buddies of mine, Sotak Andre and Vincent Spragna. Both of them have been on the podcast before, and we are going to talk about something which is something that has been on all of our minds for a while, and that is how to deload optimally and what method of deloading and mitigating training stress is the best method. And hopefully we can go back and forth on this in a manner that will shed some light on what might be a better approach as opposed to another one. So um, that's the topic. We will see how this goes. And uh, maybe I'll just have you guys give a short intro. You don't have to go into too long because both of you have been on here before. So uh, you want to start, Andre, saying something about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me uh, once again. So I'm from Romania. I like to lift things. I like to think about lifting things. I like to talk about lifting things. And uh, for my, um, I make a living essentially by helping other people do smaller decisions about lifting things. <laughs> nice. I like I like that one. Cool, Vincent. I go to college in the U.S. I'll spare you the details. I haven't really done much. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that was the best. Okay. Well, and I am just able, the alpha and omega of SSD. No, just kidding. No, um, but yeah, you guys know me. I guess I'm the host here or something. So um, yeah, uh, let's start with talking about deloads after this very professional intro. So let's start with what what the hell is a deload and what is the purpose of a deload? Um, How would you guys define it? Um, I guess my very vague definition would be to reduce training stress, uh, manage fatigue, and maybe set yourself up for a more productive um, training block in the future if we are going from, if we are assuming a pre-planned deload, or it can be in an acute sense, just mitigating whatever fatigue or kind of uh, damage we suspect happened as a result of training. So that would be my definition. Uh, do you guys want to jump in with yours? Uh, Andre, you can start if you want. Yeah, sure. So Again, I'm. Um, I like to be as. Um, I like to take a practical approach to things. So for me, deload simply means what the name implies: just taking some load off your uh, body, both physically and mentally, which I think is just as important as the former one. 
And this can mean a variety of different things, can mean doing fewer sets, can mean um, reducing your training loads. This can mean um, reducing the number of days you go to the gym um, in a variety of ways and in a variety of um, percentages or in more or less um, fashion, I guess. So uh, some people do more of it. Some people take an entire week off. Some people take just a couple of days off. Some people go um, every day that they used to, but simply do less. So Cool. Vincent? I agree with you guys. I'll frame this in a slightly different context. As a function of training, you are inevitably going to accumulate fatigue over time in progressively overloading to induce adaptations. Because you're going to inevitably induce stress over time, your fatigue will eventually accumulate to such a degree that you need to drop fatigue in order to continue progressing with regards to resistance, training, volume, or load on the bar, depending. So as a result of that accumulated fatigue, you need to take protocols to minimize this fatigue, or at least get it back to baseline so you can continue to progress in the future. As such, I think the protocols to go about doing that that you guys describe are often good ones. So you can take days off, you can perhaps lower the weight on the bar, you can do less volume, a combination of all those things. You can spend more time with your family and chill out a little more for psychological benefit, whatever suits your personal preferences. But there's a lot of potential ways one can go about setting a deload up just so long as it accomplishes the purpose of allowing that fatigue to dissipate. Yeah, and okay, so um, what I'd like to say about that is that I think this right away opens up a nice intro into the whole concept of why it is worth debating or discussing this in the first place because I, like you said, in the real world, very much it happens that we accumulate fatigue both on a tenderness level, connective tissue level, and even psychologically. Like I talked about it on the podcast various times that I just like every once in a while, you know, just every couple of months, just take a week off sometime to just basically reset my mind, to not second guess myself in my training, not think about it all the time. And I often find that returning after that one week, I'm basically a new man in the gym. I can appreciate low volumes again. I can focus on the quality of my work. My my training sessions are not a chore anymore. So these things very much happen. And also sometimes, um, even if we argue that in an ideal scenario, this accumulating fatigue on a physiological level would not be necessary because in an optimal scenario, we, we could just optimally line up or stress curves and basically line them up with our recovery curves perfectly so that it's basically always at a balance. But in the in a real world scenario, that's rarely the case. And it can often result in people are just, you know, just pushing things to the point where all of a sudden everything starts hurting, which definitely happened to me at times when I was like, okay, it, it, I can't really just switch up exercises or modify rep ranges here. I actually need to take some time off because basically everything is hurting. So these things do happen. So taking dedicated times to rest or reduce training stress is necessary on those times. But I think maybe let's start there. Like, do you guys think that in an ideal scenario, it would be possible to set up our training in a way that it, our fatigue levels never exceed our recovery and adaptation abilities? Maybe, perhaps if you had everything mapped out and um, you lived essentially in a in a vacuum and uh, you had as much sleep as you 
could want and um, you had all the food available to you prepared you had special sports supplements available um, supervised by a medical doctor you had no family and um, nothing no financial stress no bills to pay and nothing like that then perhaps but uh, since i don't think that's a realistic um, situation for most people then um, in a real life situation probably not vincent what do you think I view the deload as just taking a break from training such that you aren't forced into one, because I agree with everything that Sotek said. There are various factors that contribute to both psychological and physiological stress, and to avoid injury over time while maintaining the ability to progressively overload in resistance training and thereby induce muscular hypertrophy or strength adaptations, deloads are going to be necessary in some form at some time. Um, so, so maybe like to make this more illustrative, let's look at kind of one of the most common ways of doing this, which is a very classic way of or classic model of deloading, which is training or accumulating for three weeks, let's say, and deloading on the fourth, then continuing, or maybe every fifth week, sixth week, something like this. So what do you guys think about this? Like my kind of beef with this one was always that, um, I would agree that if you're a content producer and you're giving out advice to a big audience, then you have to give some sort of a number because some people, if you just tell them, just take a deload when you feel it's necessary, then for some people it will result in just taking deloads all the time, but some people will just never deload. Maybe I would be in the latter camp in that, that case. So how much do you think this could be auto-regulated in an individual basis? Like you just train until you feel like, okay, things are starting to catch up with you. And if this happens in 16 weeks, then you deload every 16 weeks. If it happens in five weeks, then you deload every five weeks. Um, I don't know. Do, do you think that there's an inherent need to pre-plan deloads on, uh, you know, pre-schedule them in a sense? So um, I think it depends uh, tremendously on the population we're talking about again. If you talk about the... Um beginners that I mostly train in person, then in that case, no. And I don't even remember, I don't think I ever mentioned to anyone the term deload or the equivalent. Because uh, honestly, I'm sure that if trainers are listening to this, they can relate with those guys. The issue is, or the bigger concern is them actually um, hitting their 12 week monthly sessions or 16 or however many they are paying you for. So in that case, if someone is training Definitely less than four, but usually two, maybe three times per week. I mean, realistically, especially if they work with me or with a competent trainer, you're not going to kill them in those three workouts in three hours. So they would need. So if you do a reasonable training plan, um, three days a week, the other four days should be plenty enough so that you can recover. And realistically, you can never or you should never take a pre-planned deload since life is going to take care of that for you. And you're going to have holidays. I work with a ton of college students, so they have um, Christmas vacation, Easter vacation, um, some other holidays when they just <laughs> go home to their parents. So that's already a week off, usually, if not two. And that's every usually every two months, there's something like that. And there's a train coming. <laughs> All right, we'll wait for the train passing. I'll sing something in the meanwhile. Uh, let's say, hmm, what should I sing? Do you guys like Gypsy Kings? <laughs> Okay, it's it's fast. Oh, it was quick. Yeah. So yeah. So in that case, um, there really is, is a need. There isn't a need for one because life essentially takes care of it. If you talk about who is a recreational lifter, 
and perhaps has a bit more experience and trains four days per week then again maybe once every i don't know eight to ten weeks perhaps but then again i think life takes takes care of that for the most part so you don't really need a whole lot of pre-planned deloads um the main population or trainee which would benefit or <laughs> uh, from this kind of uh, setup is someone who is very dedicated um essentially someone who wants to compete in bodybuilding or who makes um bodybuilding or lifting um the forefront of their their schedule these would be guys who train five six maybe seven days per week um more than an hour per day maybe even two hours and especially guys who also do concurrent training or hybrid training which isn't my population just mentioning it here that uh, guys who do uh, lifting and also cycling or some sort of endurance uh, events in that case managing their fatigue would be uh, definitely a bigger uh, priority and concern vincent thoughts i tend to have tentative deloads planned and that's every four to five weeks for me but I don't coach clients, so SOTAC can give better advice to just the layman who's looking for time in the gym. I regulate my own training with a paradigm of about four or three, three or four to one loading to deloading, or because I just find that happens to work for me. But everybody else is a bit different, and I could probably train more often than that relative to how much I'm deloading. But as I said, I just like to play it very conservatively. I'm more concerned with not getting hurt than I am with building as much muscle as possible. Yeah, okay. I think... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I, I just wanted to add on that. Um, with the online clients, however, I do implement deloads usually um, every six, seven, something like that. So my default would be something like a five or six to one. So five or six weeks of hard training and one um, week of deload. But that's mainly... Um, uh, it's a more of a preventive um, issue since um, I'm not in their head, I'm not with them. And, um, you know, there are those people who, if you ask them, they will tell you, how do you feel? Oh, I feel fine. I feel amazing. And then they just, oops, my arm fall off, less workout. Sorry. <laughs> so, and also this is, um, Especially during this time of the year, many people are looking to drop uh, some fat, so they are in a hypocaloric state, and that doesn't really help with recovery either. So if someone is trying to lose fat and they don't consume as many calories as perhaps would be uh, ideal to have their recovery, then in that situation it's probably a bit more important to take um, regular deloads. But I, um, you mentioned at the beginning the four to three to one or four to one. I think that's overkill. I mean realistically you shouldn't need um after three weeks you shouldn't need um a week of easy training if you just do bodybuilding i mean yes if you are a equipped powerlifter or someone who is just insanely strong then yeah but i can't really relate to that so i can't uh, comment about that but um other than that i think at least you probably if you need to deal with um, more often than maybe every sixth week and you're just doing regular hypertrophy training, then you probably need to reassess um, what you're doing with your recovery and what kind of training you're actually doing. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, is that I think there are just so many... For, first of all, I think um, how, you, how you touched on this, we have to distinguish between people who are, you know, we just 
our main challenge is to actually get them in the gym and to have them perform an exercise, you know, within maybe three reps of failure, you know, if that's the main challenge, then deloads are almost certainly not necessary because they are going to deload on their own, whether or not we tell them. Um, but when we are dealing with someone, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that the online clients you have, a lot of them kind of come through the rings of, you know, Renaissance periodization, you know, they are kind of, um, people who came through those circles, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of people, if you tell them, you know, the average volume tolerance for most people is between 10 and 25 sets a week, then they will like, okay, I'll start with 25. <laughs> you know, if you're <laughs> communicating with those people, then if anything, uh, having prescribed deload weeks is almost like an insurance policy that, okay, I'm assuming that you are going to overkill things. So at least if we have that one week of lighter training in there, then at least on that week, you're certainly not going to kill yourself. Like if anything for that, it's a pretty good strategy. But um, at the same time, I would, I would say that, you know, if you're pretty moderate and conservative with your training, then your ability to adapt your, to your training should be pretty close to what kind of training stress you're going to put on yourself. So if you're kind of targeting the, lower end of that curve where you're hitting that kind of optimal volume and, you know, training load zone for yourself and, you know, things are not hurting, there are no joint issues, then I would agree that if you have to deload every fifth week, then probably your training is just not sustainable in the first place. That, that That's what I would think. Yeah, for sure. And um, one other consideration is simply to, <laughs> keep, to keep the perspective in mind that um, no one's, I mean, I don't train competitors, so everyone's training is just a hobby no one is paid to train so if by every six or seven week we can um, reduce fatigue so that they can actually um, remain a fully functional human being and uh, not start underperforming at their actual job that's paying their bills or not um, be forced to simply lay down after workout because they are so tired um, then i think that's a good uh, a good thing in the overall uh, perspective of things so that's one other consideration to keep in mind when um, deciding how often should you deload or not yeah and um you may, i have some more things to say on this but maybe it would be a good time to uh, bring up the concept of reactive deloads because um, that's i mean i think when we are talking about letting life to dictate things as opposed to a, a pre-made schedule dictating things i think that's kind of at the epitome of, of that concept is this that instead of having any sort of deload weeks or days pre-scheduled, you're basically letting your performance dictate uh, when you're going to reduce your training stress. And this is kind of the philosophy that I've been brought up on. So I've been certified as a personal trainer on, under Menno Henselmans's um, Bayesian Bodybuilding uh, Certification Program. And uh, that's, that's kind of the philosophy that we've been brought up there is that you're looking at your performance and if you're not progressing on certain movements or movements where it's actually realistic to expect progress week to week, if progress is not as planned, then you're reducing training stress accordingly. So as an example, you've been prescribed four sets of squats and according to your training log this week, you expect it to squat with 100 kilos, let's say for six reps, um, but you're only hitting four reps with 100 kilos. That's an indication that you didn't recover. And so you're just going to do speed work for the remaining sets or even just skip your remaining sets altogether and move on to the, to the next exercise. And you're selecting a couple of main compound lifts on which you're gauging your recovery this way. So maybe squats, bench presses, Romanian deadlifts. And um, you're basically letting your volume to auto-regulate itself this way. So 
what do you guys think about this concept? Um, I'll give my own thoughts uh, once I've heard your take on this. So whoever want to go first? I think that reactive deloading is a pretty good approach. I think it depends on the individual more so than anything. From a perspective of purely managing fatigue and recovery, I think it's a great idea for those who want to maximize muscle growth, and that's their primary goal. Because you need not have a pre-scheduled deload in your program. Fatigue is very individual, and it fluctuates with life circumstances. As such, you manage it as it comes with reactive de- reactive deloading, and I think that is probably a fine approach. As Sotek mentioned, life throws its own deloads at you in many cases, and especially if you're going to have those issues crop up where you just can't go to the gym for a week or so every two to three months, then reactive deloading in the interim is certainly a viable approach. But with that in mind, I think pre-planned deloads can still be beneficial because it's not as if the two are mutually exclusive. You can reactively deload just for extended periods of time and still have pre-planned deloads going forward for certain muscle groups. For example, if you've been training a muscle group for eight months or something straight and you're really thinking, wow, I haven't needed a reactive deload, there's something wrong, then maybe you just take one because it's not going to hurt very much. It depends on the circumstances and the individual as well as the goals, but just because it's not always necessary, it doesn't mean that a deload can't be beneficial because we aren't necessarily certain on the recovery time points for ligaments, joints, tendons, and any specific individuals, ligaments, joints, and tendons at that. So for purposes of injury management, while it might be optimal from a perspective of muscle growth to continuously train all the time and just reactively deload only when necessary, I think it's too reductionistic to look only at the muscles for any extended period of time, assuming you don't want to run into injuries at all in your training career. The degree to which you're willing to risk injury is, of course, dependent on the degree to which you want to maximize muscle growth. But I take deloads relatively uh, at a rate higher than you guys would recommend because I play it more conservatively. And it's worked. I haven't been injured in my career. But I'm also not the biggest guy. so. Yeah, so it's always uh, kind of hard to give um, clear-cut definitive answers when we talk about general concepts. I definitely agree that... Um, safety should be paramount but i think for that um ensuring proper execution and good exercise selection and knowing what knowing um knowing what to do essentially and um picking exercises that fit your body and not trying to fit your body to certain exercises um like so many people try to do i think that's going to do um that's going to be the most uh, important factor for longevity overall I haven't really been injured um, either, so there's that, and I definitely don't. Uh, I probably deal with less uh, frequently than uh, than you, Vincent. But I also, if I might give my personal example, I train six days per week most of the time because I just I am I'm at the gym anyway, and I I like it. But I also try not to be an idiot. So if something is bothering me, I'm not going to do it, or I'm going to try to find an alternative. I am also very mindful of my range of motion, and I know this is a very different um, topic, and we can discuss it some other time. But 
for example, on a on a leg press right now, my <laughs> this is again me being stupid. Way back, um, probably a year ago, I I was using um, incorrect alignment on lunges, and since then my if I'm not uh, attentive, my right knee is giving me some issues. But if I just bring it, if I'm aware of my internal um, active range of motion, and I know some people are going to throw their laptops um, to the wall when they hear this term, so chill out and uh, don't be emotional. Um, so if I'm uh, mindful of my active range of motion, then I'm fine. If I, however, try to bring down the leg press um, into a position that I think that I'm supposed to do because I heard that for range of motion is good, then my right knee is going to bother me. In the same way, if I just focus on pushing the leg press up because external focus is better for performance, then my right knee hurts. But if I focus on contracting my quad, then it doesn't. <laughs> so I think these are small things that with experience you can pick up. But other than that, I can't really talk about um, joints and ligaments and all that um, and their recovery times because I'm honestly, I'm not really um, well versed in that topic. Um, I know that it's um, longer than muscles recovery time for sure. However, unless you are really, really, really strong, so I don't know, um, squatting more than twice your body weight for reps, benching maybe more than 1.5 times your body weight for reps, deadlifting two and a half times, maybe um, even three times, um, then yes, probably you need some um, more conservative deload times. And by that, I mean um, more often. But if you're just a regular uh, gym goer who has... Um, respectable but not insane strength levels and you actually focus on doing quality work instead of doing endless amounts of sets and keeping the uh, parameters of execution in mind that i think reactive deload is going to be a um, decent uh, choice for most people with potentially um like vincent said this potentially combined with um, um a week of easier training i don't know once every couple of months I think one distinction to highlight, or maybe two between our situations, are that you're in the gym anyway for much of your training. So with that in mind, because you're coaching people, it makes more sense for you to deload less often because that's just time you're going to be sitting in the gym and not be doing a ton. I wouldn't be going to the gym as much, or I wouldn't be spending as much time there if I were to take a deload, and that would be time spent doing other more productive things. So the deload would not just benefit my training in that sense, it would benefit the rest of my life because I'd be more productive that week. But it, again, comes down to goals in that sense. It matters yeah. how much do I care about being productive relative to how much do I care about training. Yeah. And how often you deload can also reflect how much you value being productive in that sense. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that's kind of a... That that's kind of a different different perspective, although of course relevant. And the the, the one thing I'd like to add on reactive deloads is that I think that uh, you know I having been uh, I having used this approach and not having used it, I can definitely tell you from experience. And I don't think that Menno, for example, who came up with the whole concept, just using performance and uh, you know whether or not you have hit a PR as a gauge of okay, do I need to reduce training stress by itself is not enough. So you know. I've definitely, and I think all of them, all of us can tell you the same thing that we have all hit, hit PRs in the past when we were sleep deprived, felt like shit, and our joints hurt. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that we wouldn't benefit from reduced training stress. So I think that if you take into account things such as, you know, how do you feel 
you know, you, of course, it takes knowing oneself. It can be taken too far. But, you know, if you're sleep deprived and you feel like you're just not present, maybe that's not the best day to go there and try to hit a, a squat PR, for example. Maybe a very, very experienced lifter who's, whose tech, you know, technique is 200% dialed in and will never make a mistake, maybe they can afford it. But for us mortals, maybe it's just better or cool to just even just switch up our training a little bit on that day and do some of our lighter accessory work, which are, you know, less risky, um, those sorts of things. Or maybe if some... If, if you just have a hint of a doubt, like maybe uh, my knees are a little bit off today, maybe I shouldn't do knee dominant, uh, you know, quad training today. If you take these things into account, then I think uh, an acute mitigation in training stress can be a good strategy. Uh, but I think if someone gets into the mindset of, okay, I'm just going to abort sets if I actually fail to hit a PR, that might be problematic because, you know, what if you were, you have an injury in the making? Your tendons have been getting incrementally more pissed. Your elbows are hurting. Uh, and you go in there like, okay, I'm going to hit a, try to hit a PR on weighted chin-ups. It's like, okay, I did my first set. I didn't hit my PR, so I'm going to abort the next sets. But it probably wasn't still very good that you tried to hit that PR in your first set and you did a heavy set of six with super heavy weighted chin-ups when your elbows were hurting. So, you know, you have to apply some common sense before you start using this sort of auto-regulatory method. Uh, that, that would be my take on this one. Yeah, for sure. Can I just add two things? So first, uh, what Vincent said um, with regards to time management, um, I definitely agree. But in that case, what I would do instead is um, <laughs> eliminate the need for of tra taking the frequent deload. So I wouldn't do as much uh, stuff in the gym in the first place. Because usually the people who need frequent deload are the guys who, and I really uh, kind of come to this, like, this approach of, um, and I know Mike is not really to blame, but... Uh, improper implementation of these people. And I've had messages like that in the past, that people who try to deliberately overreach and they already have this planned out that I'm going to do this many sets on this week and this many on this week, and then I'm going to just crush myself on week five or week four or whatever, and then I'm going to take a deload. So instead, if your time is precious, and I'm sure everyone's is, I would just do fewer sets, fewer exercises, um, focus on quality and... Um, not create as much recovery demand, and that would probably mitigate the need to uh, deal with that frequently. And what Aber said, I definitely agree, but I think it can be summed up with just not being an idiot. So, <laughs> like you said, if if something feels off, um, just don't be a retard and don't try to push things that they. And I also think that there are a couple of things you can do to test your. Um, readiness um, that day you can use things like sleep the previous night um, consider how much you slept for example if i slept four hours as sure as hell i'm not going to try to push for prs because i know i'm it, i might be able to do it but then i know my recovery is going to suffer down the line for the subsequent uh, days and weeks perhaps um you can do things like doing um some people like to call it potentiation set test set uh, whatever essentially you either take your um your first working set or i even i did this when i used to do um barber squats i used um perhaps 105 110 percent of that working weight and just do one single and see how that moves so if your regular um working set is moving slow as hell with even one rep then you know that you are probably not going to be able to do eight reps with it that day um you can use things like reps in reserve so for example, if you have 100 kilos to do for 10 with two reps in reserve and um, the weight feels heavy, then you can just do 95 kilos for two reps in reserve. 
And these are kind of things you can use in conjunction with um, the reactive deloading to manage your training load acutely and chronically better. Yeah, no, it's um, it's it's not being an idiot is, is kind of, if you want to use any sort of, you know, and being an idiot, you know, that's, I would say that's an inevitable consequence to to a lot of us to just being a, an, an inexperienced lifter. And even if you are an experienced lifter, I think some people are just not capable of managing their own fatigue. That's the benefit of a lot of people just having a coach, you know, even if you are, if even if you know what to do and you could prescribe really sound training programs for others. I outsource my training program multiple times. You know, I worked with Berge Fagerli, for example, for extended periods because I, I just didn't trust myself. And, you know, when he put together a training program for me and gave me the guidelines, I was like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I could have designed this training program myself, but having it given to me and having kind of a black and white answer, okay, this is what the coach says, this is what I'm doing, just ease my mind. And, you know, I can be a living testament of taking the freedom that auto-regulation gives you too far and kind of interpreting it in a way that you that allows you to do things that you would want to do anyway. So, I mean, I had times when I, I wanted to auto-regulate things and switch up exercises, but it's pretty hard to switch things up and mitigate things acutely when literally your elbows are hurting, your knees are hurting, your shoulders are, are kind of achy, and your back feels pretty funny. I literally had that, you know, like... <laughs> I was sleeping and in the morning, that's what woke me up. Like, holy shit, just everything hurts. I, I would go out in a bar. I was sitting with someone and I had to take a paracetamol pill because my upper back was so inflamed that I couldn't sit still. So these things happen to me. So if you're in that situation, you know, might be worthwhile to take pre-plan if you're in that kind of a camp. So something to keep in mind. I think two other things to highlight are, one, what psychological effects the deload itself will have on an individual and to what their experience has been to that point. You guys are outlining personal experiences just before talking about things you sense are off and feelings in your joints that throw you or exercises you have to avoid because they result in a pinch or whatever. Knowing that about yourselves is hugely crucial, and that's not the level of experience that most people have. The more of that experience you have, the better you can auto-regulate your deloads. Because as you become familiar with yourself and know when you think you need the deload better than an arbitrary plan can tell you, that's when you can really use reactive deloads to your benefit. Additionally, it depends what effect the deload itself is going to have on your psychology. Listening to you guys speak, it seems you're the type of people that are biased towards doing more when possible and biased towards spending a lot of time in the gym lifting on a regular basis just for fun. I'm a little bit towards the other, other end of the spectrum where being in the gym is cool. I like growing my muscles, but at the same time, there's a lot of other stuff I'm interested in doing. And with that in mind, a deload for me is really just hedging my bets and playing it safe with regards to injury while also taking a week to be a little more productive. For you guys, a deload, a pre-planned deload that is, when it's not precisely needed, can be debilitating. Maybe that just throws you off. Maybe it screws up your relationship with training, and maybe it makes your week even worse, and you're perhaps less productive because you're missing the structure that comes with going to the gym and working out hard on a regular basis. So again, it's highly individual. To cite a case example here, my friends often or currently have finals week, 
And in the context of studying for a finals week, it might be a really good time to take a deload, whether or not you had a pre-planned deload for that week, just because you need the extra time to study. And it might be psychologically beneficial if you're not stressing out about your finals while you're in the gym. However, if you happen to be on spring break and you have a week off, but you love to train, even if you had a pre-planned deload scheduled for that week, it would really make sense to go train because your stress is going to be lower and you enjoy it. So why not get the gains out of that period? if you know it's going to be better for you in the long run and you're better for your psychology. Yeah, I mean, one comment I want to make on that is that, you know, we are going to touch on um, the building up and accumulating over the weeks and uh, working up to the most volume you can uh, essentially purposefully overreach and then taking a deload. And that's kind of the method that's been uh, made famous, maybe not only by Mike Isretel, but he's, I guess, the latest uh, propagator of that method. And uh, while I don't, particularly agree with some of the the concepts that he he talks about here but one thing that i 100% agree with is that you have to distinguish when you're doing your training to get results or you're doing it for therapy and i think that the stronger you are and the bigger you are and the more overall loads and training stress you're able to handle and can benefit from so basically what i'm saying if you're a highly advanced lifter the less and less you can afford to use training as therapy you know if you're like us guys here, it, or I'm going to speak for myself, I can still benefit from a moderate amount of volume. I'm strong-ish, but not super strong. I can get away with using training for therapy and, you know, basically tailoring my amount of training that I'm doing based on what's going to make me happy. And, you know, I would say that when I'm in one of those phases where I'm just going to take it easy, so I'm going to be in the gym four days a week, and I'm going to err on the lower end of what I think is going to be optimal for me in terms of volume. So, you know, I'm not going to do reverse flies for my rear delts because probably they're going to get enough stimulation from the rows that I'm doing. And I'm not going to go crazy with app training because my core is getting stimulating, stimulated from chin-ups and overhead presses. If I'm in one of those phases, then basically using deloads or having a light week as a means of um, treating my psychology is almost certainly not going to be necessary because I'm always hungry for training because I'm always fully recovered and I'm always fully for just crushing it in the gym anytime I'm stepping in there. But when I'm in there six times a week and I'm erring on the higher end of what I think is going to be optimal for you, optimal for me in terms of training volume, then yeah, every once in a while having a light week is going to reignite my desire to train. So it really depends on kind of where you're airing yet. And, and I think if you are like Andre touched on this multiple times that, you know, if you feel the need to do these kinds of things to reinvigorate yourself, then maybe your training methods are a little bit too aggressive for where your priorities lie in the first place. So that would be my take on this. I have so many thoughts on these. Um, I actually forgot uh, to mention the um, stage of the life you're in. Um, so yeah, definitely. If you have something very stressful going on, then <laughs> you should probably, if not uh, take a complete deload, but perhaps reduce the training load, the overall training load during those um, days, weeks, whatever that is. And as far as psychology goes, that's a completely different but very important topic. And um, we haven't really touched on it, but um, this is where perhaps um, the type of deload comes into place and um, balancing simply taking an entire week off or just coming into the gym and doing lighter sessions. For me personally, I don't really like taking weeks off because I just find it annoying that when I come back after a week, um, I, I touched on this before, but I have a pretty shitty baseline. And from what I've seen, the people who um, 
um, need longer to build something also tend to lose it more easily. So the gifted ones not only acquire something very easily, but also are very good at holding on to it. So I have um, a female client who seems to be very responsive to training and she can take two weeks off, come back and hit uh, a new PR. Meanwhile, if I um, take a week off from the gym, <laughs> I have to reduce my rules with like 10% at least. So for me, I would much rather take um, deload days in the traditional sense and just reduce the training load and um, but still get some quality work in, um, reinforce that proper execution and all that. Meanwhile, others just find that annoying that, oh my God, I have to go to the gym, but I can't really work hard and I just have to dick around with these pussy weights. So for them, it might be more beneficial to take the entire week off and focus on something more um, important. <laughs> That's me. Like I would much rather rather take a whole week off then go in there and just dick around with submaximal lows that not going to make me bigger, but are going to take my time. So guys, are there any points on this one or can we prog or transition into the third method of deloading? Not that there aren't more and maybe if we have some time at the end, we can touch on some of those as well, but uh, maybe you can touch on the building up to your MRV, maximal recoverable volume and then deloading and... Um, spew out our thoughts on that one. Uh, Andre and I uh, talked about this in our latest discussion on the podcast. So shall we go into that or any other thoughts on this one still? One quick thing to exemplify Sotak's point is I ended up taking this past week off from training simply because my headphones broke and I wouldn't have had music. <laughs> so again, it really depends on the context, the situation and personal preference, which deload method you are going to take but we can get into discussing the specific. No, methods. but I mean that's. No. I mean that's even in Eric Helms's uh, muscle and strength pyramids. Like if your headphone is broke, then you shouldn't go to the gym. Like that's that disclaimer is always given. So <laughs> I don't think that's controversial in the scientific literature. So <laughs> I think Schoenfeld did a meta analysis on that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so though listening to loud music does have a good reputation in the literature for boosting performance. That's so, oh, that's there's something that is true. That. God damn it, that is true. Uh, but it depends also, right? Like it varies. I think angry music playing loudly improves performance to a greater degree than less angry music. I, I, I tend to listen wrong. to wimpy, like romantic love songs in the gym. Like that actually gets me going, but I'm kind of weird. But anyway, so, um, okay, let's talk about this uh, building up to your maximal recoverable volume thing. So a 30 second recap of the concept. Uh, we talked about this a week ago or whatever this comes out. So um not going to go into it too much, but basically you're starting out with your so-called minimum effective volume, so the least amount of volume that could potentially elicit or probably will el elicit some gains, and you're also starting out further away from failure, so, so kind of submaximal training. And as the weeks go on, if your recovery is on point, then you're adding in sets and you're adding in more and more volume. So basically, you're using volume as a means of inducing progressive overload and increasing training stress, and you're also getting closer and closer to failure. So... Um, you would start out with something like 10 sets and then week two, 12 sets, if all goes well, then 14, 16, and maybe at week four, you're up to maybe 20 sets. Then you're really close to overreaching or even potentially going into functional overreaching. Then you're taking a deload and then recycling and starting out with 10 sets. Um, like I touched on this in the last episode with Andre, I, I think it, it's pretty hard to the to discuss this method of deloading without actually discussing the actual method of progression, how valid that is. Because in this case, for sure, I mean, if you're going to push yourself to the max and you're going to push yourself towards overreaching, then for sure you are going to benefit from deloading. 
But the question is, was that method of progressing, you know, valid or warranted in the first place? So uh, whichever one of you guys want to take this away. I'm not sure I have a ton to put in here, but I guess I'll discuss my training progression method again, in most cases, with regards to volume. I tend to err towards using a set range and auto-regulate how many sets I do within that range. The minimum of that range is the amount of volume that I think I need to grow at minimum, and the maximum amount of that range is the most I think I can benefit from doing. I auto-regulate between how many sets per muscle group per week I do, based on how I feel on my given sessions. And with that in mind, much of my training is already auto-regulated in that sense, so I'm implementing a lot of the deloading methods you spoke to earlier with regards to how do you feel and how are you progressing. I, In addition to that, I have the pre-planned deloads that I shuffle in, but it doesn't necessarily have to come after a period of overreaching, and it doesn't necessarily need to come after my period of highest training volume. It comes pre-planned just because I'm doing it conservatively. I think that overreaching and deloading is a fine method. However, I think it might be unnecessary. I think one can attain similar progress by simply spreading that volume over more weeks rather than shuffling it all into that last week and maybe be able to go even longer without deloading. I think the benefits of the deload after the overreach are really just allowing for the adaptations that couldn't come because you were overreaching in the previous week. Thoughts on the concept of, um, you know, adding in sets over the course of the weeks and then recycling to the minimum that you could progress on? As I said, I'd like to use a range. I don't think it necessarily matters how you distribute volume week to week. I think session to session is much more important and managing fatigue and recovery on that micro level is probably more relevant than microcycle to microcycle variations in volume. But I think that accumulating volume in that fashion is a fine method. I think you can perhaps benefit from eliciting the repeated bouts effect earlier on when you're doing lower volume and progressively increasing it, thereby the last week of your training is the highest volume, but also less damaging per set because you've elicited the repeated bouts effect. Cool. Mr. Sotak? Yeah, so... When it comes to the whole MRV and overreaching, I my thoughts have kind of, like I said, my thoughts have kind of changed and evolved on it during the months and I think years since it has come out. Um, initially, I was very enthusiastic about it. I think that was um, back when I, I, I had, um, I was a college student and I had way too much free time and I wasn't really valuing my time because I wasn't really paid for it. So... So uh, way back then, I was a bit more of a fan of their practical implementation. In the theoretical sense, again, I think the concepts Mike outlined in his book are definitely valid and interesting. And I think most people should at least read them just for some intellectual, um, um, to just to spark some thoughts in there as if they are interested in this kind of um, deep dive. Um, now, in, in a practical sense, I'm not sure that um, the for most people who are going to listen to this, because, and by the way, this is really funny. Um, I always get these kind of comments in the gyms that when I log my workouts or something like that, well, the biggest guys and the most in, um, gifted guys don't really care about these kinds of details. Like, I'm not I'm not really convinced that Phil Heath or Big Ramey is uh, mapping out his MAV or MRV or MAV, and he's trying to progress through that. So, 
that's one aspect. And on the second, I guess what I'm really trying to say is that if your genetics aren't great, then um, you're not really going to be able to to change a whole lot um, by implementing this detailed uh, progression method. In the um, on the other side, I think that um, most people again they have bigger things to worry about. So I think most people just the quality of their work is so shit that um, simply fixing that is going to do much more for them than worrying about the progression method they use. Um, so I think having huge fluctuations, like, like you said, doubling or perhaps even more real sets. So starting from 10 and going up to 20 or even 20 something, I think that's insane for most people. Um, perhaps it is a place for some really, really, really advanced people who have been lifting for like 25 years. Maybe they are four years old or something like that. And they are really at the top of their, um, potential then in that case, perhaps, but um, I've seen way too many people who have reached impressive, super impressive physics and um, they have not really um, done this kind of programming. So I'm not saying it's not valid. I don't think the potential returns are worth the potential uh, risks and harms. And as far as the overreaching phase, again, we don't really have much um, scientific evidence to support this and it doesn't really mu make much sense that <laughs> your body would just give you a whole lot of muscle, um, extra muscle mass by um, beating up yourself. Um, I mean, if people like to use the suntan analogy that while training is like a suntan, then this would be the equivalent of just going out into the sun six hours, then just retiring in your room for a week and oh my God, I'm just going to get so much more tanned. I mean, we all know that what's, what's going to happen is just you're going to get burnt like crazy and you're just going to <laughs> lay in your bed and just pray that this whole thing goes away. It's just going to be super, um, it's going to hurt so much. So again, from a practical sense, I don't think it's necessary. And um, the other reasonings that have been used with the whole satellite cell proliferation and my nuclear domain theory and all that crap, which I am too dumb to talk about, I've seen some of the guys who do this kind of actual research, not just Google search about it. So guys like Jimmy Bagley or Kevin Murak, um, I've seen some of their recent posts that kind of question the validity of these claims and the role of satellite cells in uh, hypertrophy, which again, I'm not really um, knowledgeable about, but I think it, um, it would be a bit too um, premature to base your training on that potential um, very small, very marginal return when it could yield some um, perhaps injuries or niggles that might not go away at all. And balance and um, this plus the um, <laughs> poor quality of, most, of work that most people do, I don't think that the um, approach is worth taking for most people. And sorry for the long-winded answer. <laughs> There's also a psychological negative to overreaching because anybody who's done it knows it feels like complete shit, <laughs> at least for that week it will. And it probably carries over outside of the gym as well, or at least when I last did so, it did for me. You'll be extremely sore if you're doing a ton of volume, and you'll probably be a little frustrated because your training is really the center of your day, and that's going to occupy much of your mental energy. If it has already, then maybe that's the right approach for you. But for many people, it's a change with regards to mindset around training that isn't certainly beneficial or isn't certainly good. So I, I have two issues with, with the, this um, building up your volume and then overreach and then recycle, deload and then recycle. 
one of them I mentioned in the last episode with, with Andrei, but um, just, just the whole concept of your volume tolerance and how much volume is best suited for your uh, current recovery capacity at the moment changes that quickly. So like one week, you benefit from 10 sets, and then just a couple of weeks later, you need 20 sets to further progress. I think if even if your volume tolerance changes rather rapidly, it's it would take, I think, a much longer time. You know, I, I certainly could be wrong, but that's what kind of makes me skeptical. And then you deload for one week, and then all of a sudden, that's 10 sets, which is like whatever, a half of what you've been doing a week before is once again an effective stimulus. That's one issue. The other one is, I mean, you, Vincent, touched on practical considerations a lot. I mean, talk about impracticality in that sense. I mean, if you're using something like a reactive deload or using even pre-planned deloads, but you let that come whenever you kind of feel like necessary. You, so maybe you could take it every fifth week, but if you feel good, you could take it every tenth week even. If you're using this kind of a progression method, I mean, then your lifestyle have to be pretty much damn 100% dialed in. I mean, if you've been planning to overreach and add in two more sets the the upcoming week, but that's a period of time when something stressful is coming up and, I don't know, you've been fired from your job or for whatever reason, your blackout curtains have not worked in your bedroom and your <laughs> room is light as hell and you can't sleep properly because you wake up in the morning too early. If that happens, then the whole plan is goes out the window right away. So that's something to consider that this is really for the elite chosen ones, you know, who have everything dialed in and pretty much almost live in a vacuum in, in my book. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And to Vincent's point, I guess it just appears to bodybuilders masochistic side. Um, those are the, I mean, I've seen some of the post Cliff Wilson makes and, uh, um, I know that the, the most successful bodybuilders take pride in being starved and essentially starving and, um, going to sleep with a growling stomach and, um, their dick not working and all that. But for an average guy, that's going to be a big turn off. And I know, for example, Brad Contreras, I've seen him mention this multiple times on Instagram that if he's hungry, he's going to eat. I mean, he's not going to, he can't fall asleep if his stomach is growing. So that's why he isn't, uh, he isn't ripped. And I can definitely, um, sympathize and empathize with that for sure and as far as what Abel said I agree and and now that I think about it the opposite would make more sense in the sense that in the traditional way that's programmed you not only start with fewer sets but you also start at a higher RER number so you might start with 10 sets at 4 reps in reserve and you might end with 20 sets at 0 reps in reserve (laughs) and if you think about it that's uh, an insane amount of gap. So the opposite would make more sense. Let's say if it went from 20 sets at four reps in reserve, and then you cut down to 10, but at failure, then it, we can say, okay, well, you started at more volume, but less intensity. And then as more um, as the sets got harder and harder, then um, the number of sets went down, but um, increasing the difficulty of both. So not only sets becoming more and more challenging, but also becoming more and more numerous, I yeah, yeah I don't think that it's um, that probably means that you're either starting very very light, which I don't think is going to yield um, much muscle growth, or you're just crushing yourself at the end. Which again I also touched on the potential implication, especially if people have shitty execution and they just um, distribute the load in in improper ways and incorrectly. I agree. And not very efficiently. Well, with both of you guys, I guess. And while I think that training volume can be undulated from microcycle to microcycle and over mesocycles. I don't think that RIR should really be played with too much, or at least not planned to be played with over the microcycles. I think that RIR is something 
you should regulate on a session-to-session basis based on how much you feel like pushing it on any given day. But I don't think orienting the program around a 7 RIR in the beginning and a 9 to 10 at the end is anything useful because... <laughs> or 6. Um, uh, probably you mean RP. Yeah, sorry, RP. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Yeah, both of us mean that, yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's much merit to doing that because your muscle doesn't require any less intensity stimulus with regards to RPE at the beginning of the mesocycle as compared to the end. In both cases, you probably want to stay around 7 to 9 RPE, in my opinion. Yeah, I touched on this uh, during our latest podcast with, um, or during our first podcast with Albert, that I have some practical um, reasonings why I do that undulation. So yes, in an ideal situation, if I knew that if I could be there with my clients or if I was 100% sure that they have immaculate execution and they feel every single inch of the range of motion in the proper, um, in the right muscle that they want to train, then yes, I would, or I could just um, start at one rep in reserve and go to zero or something like that. But since I know that the, uh, I mean, I, I have video recording, so I, I can see that the execution could use some more work. Um, I kind of increase their sets beyond what I think would be um, necessary if the execution was better, just to kind of um, go or work around that inefficiency. So essentially, if I can get um, a more potent stimulus um, from each set, then I would just have to use more of a, of a lower quality stimulus, if that makes sense. It kind of almost reminds me of if you're dieting and you do a, a day or a couple of days when you are in a massive surplus and all of a sudden you just feel so much better and your dick starts working again and you start sleeping again. That's great, but it probably means that your diet was way unsustainable to begin with. And it's kind of the same thing. Like if you have to up your volume and your uh, you de- decrease your reps in reserve drastically to keep progressing, that means that your prior training was just way below what was you know stimulative for you. And at the same time, if you, you know, if you feel like, oh my God, I'm reborn after a week of light training, then probably your training was just a little bit too intense to begin with. So um, I think those are important concepts yeah. uh, to keep in mind. Yeah. And um, I think you touched on, on that uh, your lifestyle has to be exactly dialed in. And I agree. And especially when it comes to sleep, I mean, um, almost like literally no one who has contacted me for coaching, no one has has said that, well, I sleep eight plus hours a night and my sleep quality is dialed in and all that. So in that situation, for most people, especially considering that uh, most people don't uh, get a sufficient amount of sleep that they would um, require to function optimally, I would much rather see them sleep one more hour and train one less hour um, per day instead of uh, going to the gym and crush themselves when when they have subpar sleep. Agreed. Agreed. Well, folks... Um I think we covered the three methods of deloading that uh, I really wanted to touch on. So maybe we can start slowly wrapping up and before that, just discuss how each of us like to uh, just manage fatigue and do deloads for our own training and uh, when we work with someone. I think I'll just highlight the practical change quick that comes with a deload. So while your regular training might entail lifting weights that you can handle for moderate amounts of reps to maybe higher or slightly lower than that with a seven or maybe six to nine RPE, I guess. If that would constitute your traditional training, a deload might involve simply dropping the loads such that 
you can do higher reps, or it can entail dropping the RPE such that you aren't going as close to muscular failure as you would be on a normal week. And it could entail just taking sessions off as Abel likes to do. So just to highlight that it, while the deload is generally speaking, something you can tweak, those are pretty traditional methods of actually implementing the deload. You can just leave a few more reps in reserve, do a few less sets, take a week off in any way, decrease your volume and intensity such that you potentiate or sorry, relieve fatigue. That might've been superfluous, but I wasn't sure that was emphasized. No, no, no. I think that was a great summary of, um, of things. And and do you want to, with that, um, under the same breath, do you want to go into how you do it personally? Yeah. As I mentioned, I had a set range that I adhere to with the bottom end of my set range per muscle group per week, giving me the stimulus that I think I need at minimum to make progress and the higher end of that giving me the maximum. Whereas I would normally be within that range, I'll probably drop a couple sets below the bottom end of that range. And I'll probably drop RPE about two points from what it would normally be. So while I usually have it at around a seven to nine, I would probably drop from a five to a seven. And I'm extra conservative just because I don't care about lifting that much and I don't enjoy it as much as most people in this space. But you can deload to the degree that you think it's necessary. The negative ramifications of taking too aggressive a deload aren't so severe because you're very unlikely to lose any significant amount of muscle or strength when you, at least if you still make your sessions and perform all the exercises that you would be at some significant intensity, then I think you're probably going to be just fine. I don't actually decrease the loads too much in my deloads, which differs from what most people do. But that's also because I don't lift very heavy loads to begin with, and it's not necessary in many cases. I can lower loads slightly just to elicit that change in RPE that I wanted, or I can simply leave more reps in reserve. But I tend to err on the side of leaving more reps in reserve just because I'm not lifting very heavy loads to begin with, so I don't think it matters a ton. Heavier people or bigger people that lift heavier rather can benefit from decreasing loads to a greater degree degree than people who can't lift quite as much and aren't stressing their joints as much. But I think the primary issue is decreasing volume and decreasing intensity with regards to reps and reserve more so than load on the bar precisely. Cool. Uh, Mr. Sotak? Yeah, so I'm going to outline kind of what I do and um, I guess people can <laughs> take a page out of that if they want. So what I do, I mean, these days I hardly really do more than four sets per exercise. So I'm, I usually drop that back down to two. So um, usually most exercises are somewhere between two or and four working sets. And that goes back to two working sets per exercise. And then I drop back the weight a bit. And essentially, I drop it back down to the highest weight I can maintain an immaculate execution on. So something I would rate it um, at least an 8 on my own subjective um, 1 to 10 execution scale. And I am really mindful of maintaining the my joints where they need to be. I am really mindful of um, going to the end ranges of my own range of motion, but not exceeding them. Uh, really feeling the target muscle. And... Um, when I start to fatigue and when the 
execution faster degrades than uh, the set start uh, the set stops. So that's probably a good three, four reps in reserve, something like that on compounds, maybe two, something like that on isolations. But essentially, it's the same what I do on regular weeks, but a bit less of it, a bit light wor lighter work, and a bit um, even more emphasis on execution. And that's what I would recommend most people do. And I've seen on some blog post, um, I think it was on the 3DMJ blog that, well, just be mindful or be careful that um, during your deload, you don't start doing things like slowing down the tempo. So now you actually create more muscle damage and all that. And my, my objection to that would be that if by simply by controlling the weight like I did, like I'm not recommending to do 10 second negatives. I mean, simply controlling the weight and not just dropping it down. So that might be two, three seconds, something like that. So if simply controlling the weight um, causes you to become sore and causes extreme muscle damage, even with um, less volume that you're used to, then just simply means that uh, on your quote unquote regular lifting days, your control is just non-existent or is very uh, suboptimal. So I would work on that in the first place. One thing I forgot to highlight is that I keep exercise selection the same as pretty much for the duration of my program. I haven't swapped exercises in some time for most movements. And just to highlight that, because I think in the approach you highlight in which volume accumulates over the weeks and culminates in a deload, I think in the fashion that is traditionally pitched, it's recommended you change exercises for the deload. I don't think you should change exercises at all in training. I'm just not sure it's necessary. And for purposes of minimizing muscle damage, it tends to work out better with regards to eliciting the repeated bout effect if you never change your movements. I think you should keep a movement in your program and just use the same movements in your program because that allows you to better gauge progress over time. If you can lift more with all else being equal and exercise selection included, then you know you've progressed. And I think that's a better way to go about gauging progress than, for instance, changing movements and not necessarily knowing that you're stronger, but trying to infer that you're stronger. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, I forgot to mention that was one of the reasons why I start at a higher uh, rep in reserve. If someone has an exercise that's new to them, then um, even though we might argue that you don't really need to start in, so four reps in reserve or something like that, if they are new to the exercise, if you start at zero or one rep in reserve, that's just going to be a, a disastrous a catastrophe. So, so yeah, but yeah, definitely. Um, I think I don't think that you should arbitrarily replace exercises. Um, there are a couple of reasons why you should um, improper. I mean, exercises are not perfect. So in an ideal world, you would keep them in. But since you are limited by the equipment available and all that, and um, psychologically can be um, refreshing to change things every now and then. But then this is a completely different podcast. <laughs> we can discuss some other time. Yeah, I completely agree with the switching of exercises uh, point. And um yeah, but actually that, that would be something cool to dive into later because that's also something that I, I tend to think about. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to tell you how I like to do it because like I'm one of those guys that I would rather take a week off than dick around in the gym. Um, so what I'm doing is I am doing autoregulation in general exclusively, but with the caveat that I by now know myself pretty well. Like I know my body. I know when something is about to flare up. I know how, you know, little niggles in the making, how that feels like. So I am going by my performance and I do use reactive deloads, which is the one that we talked about earlier, but I also use some hard life rules. So if I'm sleep deprived, 
I'm either not going to the gym that day or I'm just going there and I'm going to switch up my training days and I'm just going to do some light work, you know, some face pulls, some curls, things like that. And I will probably do it for higher rep ranges. I'm not going to go with that close to failure. So I'm going to do something like that. Um, I also have uh, the reactive deload in place. So if I'm falling short, so if let's say not only did I not progress in weight, but I even dropped reps, I'm just going to abort subsequent sets. So I do these kinds of things. And every once in a while, because inevitably, uh, just because I have certain sensitive body parts, for example, my knees and, or especially my elbows and my shoulders are what tend to get flared up inevitably, almost regardless of what I'm doing. Uh, every once in a while, I am just going to take a week off. And that happens maybe every 12 weeks or so. And I find that that's not only a really nice way to mitigate joint stress and um, I just come back feeling so much better, uh, but also just psychologically. Um, it just forces me to do new things with my day and uh, reprioritize things that might have suffered because I, I always had that two-hour gap in the middle of my day when I did my training session. And it, I, when I return to the gym, I just feel like a beast wanting to take over the world. So. Um, that, that's how I do things. And when I'm working with someone, so these days I've been coaching some people and most of them were pretty darn gem pop. So for them, basically the issue is almost always just trying to get them to lift closer to failure, you know, like not bitch out when lateral raises start to burn a little bit. So <laughs> I've been dealing with these kinds of issues a lot. So deloading is not something that I had to think that much about in those instances, um, but I think that if I had a really good hands-on uh, kind of relationship with someone who was really motivated and was willing to push themselves in the gym, I would probably institute something similar to what I'm doing with myself. Um, so that, that's kind of how I'm currently doing things. But I may change my perspective in the future. I think Abel's comments highlights precisely why the individual consideration is very important when determining how you should go about deloading. Because while taking a week off from the gym isn't likely optimal with regards to stuff like the repeated bout effect and maintaining strength adaptations over that time period, it is optimal for Abel psychologically because that just reinvigorates his desire to train and ultimately keeps him in the gym better for longer. So, Yeah, yeah, and, and, and just to make it clear, I would not recommend that to, to other people. So I would use the autoregulatory approaches with other people, but I would not... It does happen sometimes. So for example, someone, it was not a client, but just so someone reached out for help not that long ago. And they said that, or the girl said in specific, that she was just uh, feeling burnt out in the gym. Her knees were beating her up all the time. And she would just love to have a bit more of a social life. She just doesn't want to spend that much time in the gym. And in that case, I, I didn't recommend, you know, maybe add in some katsu leg extensions instead of squats and mitigate your knee pain that way. When I heard that she has been feeling burnt out in the gym and she just doesn't want to be there anymore, I just said, you know what, how much time would you be comfortable taking off from the gym? And she said, well, four days. And I said, okay, you know what, for four days, don't be in the gym, go back after that and then do the modifications with the exercise and all of that stuff. So occasionally I do recommend that, but I, I also don't think that that's optimal as a regular strategy for managing straining stress, just to be clear. To touch on something I think we overlooked, <laughs> perhaps this is a bit late, but what do you guys do with cardio when deloading, if you do cardio at all? I don't do cardio, so I didn't, that didn't dawn on me. But um, I'm not really a huge fan of formal cardio for um, various number of reasons. Um, 
mainly mainly because um, people tend just to beat themselves up and then just lay in the bed more and they might end up usually end up burning even fewer calories than you would have otherwise so i always encourage people to just do regular activity and try to hit eight ten thousand steps if possible per day so i would still like them to keep that up but otherwise no and one other aspect we didn't really touch on nutrition but i also i mentioned previously fat loss and deloads what i like to do in that situation is also bring up calories to maintenance um so you're not only benefiting from reducing the training load, but also the mental stress of dieting and hypocaloric states and all that. So that uh, can essentially serve a two-in-one purpose of diet break and uh, the training deload. I actually slightly disagree with that second part. You can go able if you want, but I can. Well, I, I'm going to be really quick because I basically agree with that 100%. With, with regards to cardio, I, I also just recommend being active, you know, maybe just go for more walks, uh, just find ways to be generally active. And nutritionally, the only thing I would say is that for me personally, at least, I find this to be one of the best ways to just renormalize my eating behavior. Not that it's disordered when I'm training or anything, but, you know, like I just get into the whole, whether or not I'm hungry, I train, so I should have the big post-workout meal. And oftentimes I just find that it's just an unnecessary way to rack up calories, but it's just so easy to get into that habit. And oftentimes I feel like everything just works better when I take, a, you know, like either a complete week off or just some lighter period um, that those things just get completely renormalized. But yeah, otherwise I, I would agree with Andre there. Concerning my stance on cardio, all I do for cardio is walks around casually to music and sometimes basketball to music if I feel like it. But otherwise, I think any time I spend in the gym specifically is time I should spend working out because it's simply the most effective way of getting the results I want from my training without killing my time. That said, the point I disagreed with Sotex a bit on slightly is that I don't think you need to bring calories up to maintenance for a deload. While I think it's an okay approach, I think it's fine. I tend to err on the side of increasing training volume for periods of higher calories. So especially if one is on a diet and they're upping their calories for any given week, I think that should be a higher volume week of training because that's when the calories can best benefit muscle growth and that's when the client is most psychologically apt to have productive resistance training sessions, in my opinion. I don't think it's a harm to slightly increase calories for the deload week. But I think the prospect of, oh, I'm going to lose muscle because I've taken a deload and I was still dieting a bit is overhyped in many cases, especially for resistance trainees who can easily get the muscle back if they did lose anything more than glycogen for the week that they were deloaded and still dieting. Then perhaps that's worth increasing calories a bit for, but I really think that is oversold. And I think in most cases, you want training or higher volume periods of training to coincide with higher calorie intakes. You can feel free to respond to that, though. Yeah, so uh, in a vacuum, in theory, I would agree with you. However, however, I have uh, two uh, reasons why I not do that. So one is that um, very often when I have, especially online clients, I know in advance um, when they are going to have some events or something like that. So we kind of work back from that date, and that's how we plan around uh, the deload. 
Um, so if someone has a vacation or a bike ride or a hike for five or seven days, then um, it's much easier to say, okay, just try to eat around maintenance, try to hit your protein and not worry about uh, trying to remain in a hypocalorie statement, <laughs> being with your girlfriend or family or something like that. And the other and the other reason is that um, if I'm not doing the whole MRV thing, so not trying to have huge fluctuations, then um, then I don't think that it's. Um, I mean, yeah, it sucks to uh, train during a hypocaloric state, but I mean, what can you do? Um, you have to be in a hypocaloric state sometime. So that's why I do that. Um, it's more of a practical um, implementation issue and practical concern. Very fair points. I neglected the part about the client who happens to be on vacation or whatever, because as you mentioned, the context is extremely important. In my case, it makes sense to have higher volume during higher calorie periods, because I use the set range in my training. And during hypercaloric, sorry, hypocaloric weeks, my set ranges might be more so towards the lower end of what I think I can handle, because my mood might be less apt for more training. Whereas on the higher calorie weeks, because I won't be on vacation or anything, and because I'm not extremely worried about it, then I can probably feel better and just do extra volume in the gym. But yeah, you make great points about for the individual clients, it might make more sense to, in fact, just up calories to maintenance and not worry about dieting for a week. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also very con contextual. So um, yeah, again, that this we don't live in a vacuum point is very important here. So, uh, you know, on a week to week basis, uh, what's your calorie balance in that given week sometimes doesn't matter as much as cumulative <laughs> energy balance over the course of weeks. So especially if you're in a state where you've been kind of beating yourself into the ground and you really need to take a, some lighter period to let yourself recover, then in that case, having adequate calories might be just what's needed to enable you to crash it in the next week you know i mean i think all of us had period when we were just crushing it in the gym and progressing even though we were in a steep deficit and at times you were adding in food but because you've been beating yourself into the ground you were still regressing in your training or not progressing as necessary so you know if in such a case you need a time off or some lighter training week then cutting your food too much might actually be the worst thing that you could be doing so something to keep in mind as well. Um, so guys, I, I think I'm sure we could go on, but I think we should wrap it up because like people are going to drop out here at this point exponentially or an exponential rate. So um, I think we had a real cool discussion. Um, any closing remarks? Um, I could offer a, a summary of if you want. So um, um, to kind of wrap up and offer some practical takeaways, um, how I would view deloads um, for complete newbies and beginners, I would, uh, first of all, I would not recommend them to train more than three days per week because I don't think it's necessary and they just might do more harm than good with that uh, at that point. So in their case, I would just worry on ensuring that you learn proper execution, proper technique and all that and learn how to lift hard and push yourself um, in the first maybe year, something like that. I wouldn't even worry about it. I think the most crucial um, part is the i'm sure you can all relate to is the part when you become kind of an intermediate and you get the lifting bug and that's the period when everyone wants to train six days per week do 25 sets each day and absolutely crush it so i think that's where pre-plan deloads can be useful 
so to how somehow uh, keep you in, in check and in control so that you don't run yourself into the ground and then once you perhaps get over that stage and you become um, a bit more um, in tune with your own body and become a bit more mature emotionally and you don't try to murder yourself and you try to punish yourself for your um, weak human character and your sins by um, and, and annihilating yourself in the gym um, and you're not trying to torture yourself or, or and all that um, at that point, I think uh, reactive deloading is a perfectly fine way to do things. And uh, I think that um, interspersed with occasional deloads, um, perhaps in conjunction with um, life events or something like that, and taking some easy weeks here and there every couple of months that can last you most of your lifting career. And once you get to the other extreme, when you're very, 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 very advanced and you really try to push the envelope and you have this Mike Israel style, absolutely nailed down everything and everything is mapped out and all that, then again, deal was become more important due to the other reason. But um, that would be kind of my my current views and um, thoughts on deal-loading. Agreed with Sotek. And I think the major point to nail home here is everything in context with regards to deloading. It's entirely dependent on the individual and which approach is going to be best for them. I can't disagree with any of those points. And um, with that, I want to thank you guys for being on here and uh, sharing all the good points that you just did. Uh, I'm going to thank myself. Thank you, Abel, for sharing your good points too. You're welcome. Okay. I just had this conversation with myself. So thank you, guys. It was a pleasure having you on. Same here. Thanks for having us. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave a comment and subscribe if you watch this on YouTube. If you listen to this on iTunes, please leave a rating to help this stuff grow. SoundCloud and Podbeam, you can just follow me to be notified on future episodes. And to be a contributing member of this podcast, join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group where you can drop ideas about future podcasts. I very often ask my listeners for tips and advice on who to get on next. So if you're interested in getting into discussions like that, be sure to join the Facebook group. And if you don't want to go through the searching process, just click one of those links in the show notes slash video description. It is all there. All right. Thanks for hanging around up until now and see you next time.